With your connection to local agriculture, I'm Joanna Guza. It's always great to see Wisconsin farmers getting recognized nationally. Today we are joined with two celebrities, Josh Sharp and Jerry Huth, owner of Huth Pold Herefords and SNH Livestock Enterprises from Oakfield, Wisconsin. The joint operation was selected as the regional winners for the 2022 Environmental Stewardship Award program, and we're going to learn more about their operation and some of their sustainability efforts. So, Jerry, I'll have you start first. Can you just tell me more about Hooth Pulled Herefords and SNH Livestock Enterprises? Well, Hooth Pulled Herefords was established as a 4-H project over 60 years ago, uh, and it's basically a 4-H project that went amok. Uh, I started out with a rented barn in Oakfield area, then uh, the farm that we're on now came up for sale in 1964, and we moved out here and, and have been uh, farming ever since. I've always been uh, passionate about raising Hereford cattle, and I've uh, been doing it for about 60 years now. And uh, S&H Livestock Enterprises started as a joint venture between Josh Sharp, an employee of mine, and myself to sort of give, you know, let Josh get a little bite of the action here and start his own herd up. The Hooth Pole Herfords is a registered pole Hereford operation. S&H Livestock Enterprises is a cow-calf operation that features a two-breed rotational cross between Angus and Herford. Wow, that's a very dynamic operation and we're excited to learn more about it today. Jerry, can you share how many cattle you have on the farm and then how many acres you guys are running? We, we have about 150 cows uh, every year. Uh, we're basically all cow-calf. Uh, we feed, don't feed very many animals to, to finish. Um, and uh, our operation entails about 800 acres, of which uh, about 270 acres are pasture. So we're talking with Josh and Jerry. They are the, the owners and operators of Hooth Pulled Herefords and SNH Livestock Enterprises. Josh, I'm going to start with you. What makes your farming operation unique? The fact that uh, I, I didn't really come from a farming background, I think, makes my situation unique. I was raised in a rural setting, but not on a farm. I started working for Jerry back in high school. His, his two sons are very good friends of mine. And this partnership formed. So the way it started, I think, is unique. Another unique thing about our operation is that we have formed a partnership with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. And we are one of the first operations in the state to start grazing public land. Wow. And Jerry, is there anything you'd like to add from your perspective? I, I don't know if I would agree with you if a unique is a way to describe our operation. We do it, as Josh was saying, we do a lot of different things. But, you know, like we've been rotationally grazing since 1980, but there are far better better grazers out there than, than we are uh, that I admire watching and, and learning from. There are many people that uh, are dedicating uh, different parts of their land to wildlife habitat uh, better than we are, but uh, we always manage to shoot deer and, and duck and turkeys around here and uh, uh, so there's you know I don't think we're, we're unique I just think that we're that we're that we do a lot of different things you know what Jerry I think that's a common comment that I get back from many farmers I think you're just too honest and modest that you don't think your farm's unique but I know as we continue this conversation we're going to start to pick out some of those unique features that make you guys special and and one of those is the environmental stewardship award that you recently won and you were the first farm in Wisconsin to get this award um, either Josh or Jerry if you want to tell me a little bit about the award and then what qualified your farm to receive it 
Sure. The Environmental Stewardship Award was established in 1991 by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. It is possible through generous sponsorship by the USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service, NRCS, Corteva, AgriScience, McDonald's, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So that's a rather eclectic bunch. This is the 32nd year, and they annually recognize firms that are doing outstanding stewardship practices and conservation achievements throughout the nation. We are one of seven awards winners, and uh, and the way this thing has progressed is that we were first nominated and received the Wisconsin Cattlemen's Stewardship Award in 2021. Shortly thereafter, the Wisconsin Beef Council, uh, run by Tammy Basson and Caitlin Riley, we're wondering if they can nominate us for the national award, which uh, we said, well, we're not going to win it, but we cer- certainly can nominate it. And, and uh, we were fortunate to receive the honor of uh, receiving the award. Very exciting. And congratulations again. What were some of those items that made you qualified for the award? Like Jerry said before, we, we feel like there's probably a lot of other farmers that are doing the same things. But one of the things that we really, really emphasize around here is having good soil health. and uh, good pasture management. So as Jerry mentioned before, he he started rotationally grazing back in the 80s. He was one of the pioneers for that. And we found over the years that that's really the best way to maximize the forage that we get off of the pastures, but it's also the best way to have healthy soil. Uh, so that's the first thing that we emphasize. Uh, another another key for us is that we make sure that, we, that we're helping keep clean water sources. We're located about a mile north of the Horicon Marsh. So we have streams that run through the property that run directly into the marsh, and we're, we're very sensitive about keeping any runoff from the cattle from, from not going into those streams, keeping the water clean. Another way to do that is through rotational grazing. You create a, a better soil density. You're also sequestering carbon by doing that. And then a, another thing that we think is really important, you know, obviously we want to take care of the land and the soil, but we also want to take care of the things that are on the land, living on the land. Obviously our cattle, but also wildlife. We're, we're sportsmen. We love to hunt. I love to fish, hike, camp. So I want to see those things taken care of. And, and it's important for us to be good stewards of the things that God has created. So we set aside areas on the farm that, that are for wildlife, whether that's bedding areas for deer and turkey or nesting areas for waterfall. But it's all really important to us. And those are some of the key factors that we that we put into the application process. Yeah. And, and just to emphasize that the farm can be around for another generation that, Josh, that you're going to be taking over um, and and learning from Jerry, so that's that is very exciting. Want to go back to the the rotational grazing and just some of your experiences with that, Jerry? If you could kind of just share what is rotational grazing, just for the average public to understand, and what are some things that you've learned through the years with rotational grazing? Rotational grazing has three main components to it. Uh, number one, you keep your uh, vegetation height between. 12 inches and 4 inches. You turn the cattle into it before it gets too rank at about 12 inches. You let them, let them graze it down to 4 inches, then you move. The second component is let the grass rest. Uh, don't bring cattle back onto that paddock that you just grazed for about 21 days. It may be longer if it's a dry spell, maybe shorter if it's in the peak growing season. And the third thing is that's very important is that you take, get water, bring water and mineral to the cows as opposed to having the cows come up for uh, mineral and water. 
So if you come to our, our area, we have a number of water lines that are above ground that go to different paddocks, uh, so we don't have to have the cattle coming to one common area for mineral and water. Plus, we've rectified some old uh, running gears that act as our mineral carriers that we just pull behind with our UTVs when we move the cows from paddock to paddock. And what species do you have planted in your pastures? We have a lot of eclectic mixture of grass. Uh, we are really trying to get more meadow fescue incorporated into our operation. We have a number of different clovers that we bring into it. We have your traditional brome and timothy and, of course, Kentucky bluegrass. And being low where we at, we have a lot of reed canary grass that is palatable to grazing, but you got to manage it properly. Does the crop species change? Do you need to rotate them, or is it kind of that perennial that keeps coming back every year that you don't need to be reseeding or changing up the seeds so you don't always have the same crop in there? We do different practices of uh, on our pasture, you know, like frost seeding the clover in the spring. Uh, now and then we do have to renovate a pasture and uh, go in with a, a no-till drill and uh, add some more seeds to it. But we try not to rip up the, the land and do conventional tillage unless it really gets pugged up by uh, in a muddy season or something like that. I know some farmers uh, in Door and Kiwani County were kind of experimenting with the application rate of how thick they are planting some of their their pastures or, and more for their fields, and I'm probably thinking more alfalfa. Do you guys put on a higher application when you're planting your pa- pastures or when you need to add uh, more to it? When we're interceding, we're just putting like on three pounds of uh, uh, clover, probably around six pounds of metal fescue, something like that, uh, along with, you know, some, you know, probably we put a total of about 15 pounds that we're interceding into the pasture into the existing pasture mix. You know, your existing pasture, you know, uh, is always coming through with Kentucky bluegrass, it seems, you know, but, uh, and also we're just blessed with a bunch of naturally occurring white clover. So that's always present. We just try to bring in, you know, some different seeds now and then. I have one more question for you, Jerry, about rotational grazing, and then we can move on. This is kind of a new topic for me. So trying to even learn more about it. So Jerry, you said you've been doing this since, you know, the 1980s longer than I've been alive, what have been some of those big lessons learned with rotational grazing that you've taken away in your time with doing it? You got to let the pasture rest. Uh, that's probably the biggest lesson. It's the hardest lesson that, that we always do. We always manage to screw that up a couple times a year. Uh, again, we are fairly low, and if we get to a couple of those July rainstorms that come right after another, we have a tendency to flood on some of our pasture land. And it always seems like right when we're ready to move those cows into an area of flood. So we had, that screws up our whole pass-through rotation. So and we always seem to get caught with that. Again, the, the challenge of getting water and mineral to the cows as, as opposed to getting the, uh, the cows to the water and mineral. You know, and that's, you know, that's again, running water lines on top of the uh, uh, next defense lines uh, across the pastures. And Jerry, with some of this recent weather that we've been having, you know, especially this winter, we had 40 degrees in in January, now 40 degrees again in February. 
Does that have you concerned about what your pastures are going to look like in spring? Not really. The cows, we winter the cows in on corn stalks. We have a corn stalk field that uh, has a richy water in it, has a, a shallow well that's about a half a mile from our farmstead here. And the cows are just out, out on corn stalks all winter long. Right now, we're uh, utilizing some fall-saved uh, growth that was happened on the DNR land. You got to appreciate that the DNR manages their land. They may not have the same interest that Josh and I have in maximizing cow numbers. And they last year, they wanted to rest uh, some acres that wasn't grazed that heavy at all. We only had the opportunity on grazing it in the summertime for two weeks. And now there is a lot of uh, growth, that uh, residual growth. And we got the cows out there right now grazing on County Highway AS, uh, right next to the, you know, on the DNR land. It's uh, A lot of people are wondering what we're doing, but the cows are having a good time out there getting this old growth off. And uh, they're perfect. These herpetic cows and herpetic cross cows are absolutely happy with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was Jerry Huth. Um, now, Josh, you were mentioning things about um, improving your soil health and making sure that you are protecting the waterways. What are some sustainability practices that you're doing that pertain to soil health and water quality? Um, well, the biggest one for soil health is really practicing what we preach about rotational grazing, not overworking a pasture, letting it rest long enough, but then making sure that we do get cattle in there on time. An example of that would be at the DNR land. We've been grazing that now for about five years. And when we started out over on that DNR land, it was a lot of willow and woody vegetation. The, the DNR's goal is to have that be a prairie grassland, and that's really not what it was. There, there were a lot of weeds and, like I said, a lot of woody vegetation, and that doesn't create very good soil health. So what we did over there is, is we took that biomass off of it, and then we started grazing. And you can already, in, in the first year, you could see an improvement in the forages that were coming through. You could see the soil density was, was improving. So as far as the soil health, the, the cattle kind of do a lot of that work for us. And that's, that's one of our goals out here. Uh, you know, when we talk about pasture renovation and stuff, we don't want to have to do that. We want the cattle to work for us. And if we're properly managing those pastures, uh, hopefully we, we don't have to do much pasture restoration. As far as the clean water goes, one of the things that we do is we create grass buffer strips along these streams. Uh, so we, we fence off a, a probably a good 15 feet on each side of the stream and uh, make sure the cattle aren't getting into those waterways. And Josh, when you're talking about some of the efforts that you did on this DNR land, how long did it take for you guys to see the results of the cattle and the rotational grazing actually doing its job? Did it take over a year? What was kind of that timeline? I would say within the first year, we started started seeing results. You could see that they were knocking down that willow uh, after two years especially in certain paddocks, the, the ones that maybe weren't quite so low and covered in reed canary grass, you could see a lot of clover and legumes coming through. Uh, there was some pretty good grazing out there within two years in spots. Now other spots that are, are lower lying or maybe didn't have quite the same soil quality, um, there's still a lot of reed canary grass. And, and in those areas, we're working with the DNR to, to try and push the cattle in those areas uh, overgraze them to where we normally would to try and knock back that reed canary grass and let some of the warm season grasses pop through. And Josh, with the buffer strips, 
Uh, you gave us a little bit of a description of the size. What what species does the buffer strips consist of? We we didn't plant anything in those buffer strips. So basically, when when we go through there, we we mow it down, we put a fence up, um, and so it's whatever was natively growing there. Um, that is a discussion that we've had with the DNR recently, uh, especially on that DNR land, obviously that maybe we need to start thinking about doing something along those because where the cattle aren't, we're seeing still a lot of the, the willow growing up and um, still the woody vegetation and the thistles and the weeds. So that's, that's an area for improvement that we need to work on. Is it the size that matters the most? Uh, I know that was one of the first descriptions you gave. Have people said we need them bigger or smaller? Can you, do you know any insight on that? I, I probably don't have a lot of insight on it. Um, to me, I think what matters most is making sure that the soil on the other side of the buffer strips is a good soil that is dense and that you're not, you know, in our case, we're not really spreading manure there, but if you are spreading manure that you're, you're doing it responsibly. When, when you're grazing, you're not creating a lot of runoff. You're, you're improving the soil quality. So in our in our case, I don't think the size is necessarily as important as if there's row crops on the other side of those grass buffer strips. In an RI operation, Joanna, there's very few row crops right next to the mainstream buffer strips. We always seem to have pastures that come from you know that go from our cropland to our pasture, and then then exposed to the buffer strips that, that take care of the streams. Right. So everyone's has a unique operation, unique situation, unique environment. Josh and Jerry, if you could kind of go through what are some of your future sustainability goals, kind of in the, the short term and the long term? It's sort of interesting on the on the short term deal. Everyone has their opinion on about agriculture's effect on greenhouse gases. And if you really look at the statistics, uh, agriculture only represents about 11% of the greenhouse gases generated, of which 4% come from animal agriculture. And if you break that down, 2% come from beef cattle. Even though that's almost a rounding error, there are some projects out there that are really exciting to me. There's uh, the American Herford Association is working with, in collaboration with Colorado State University at one of the American Herford Association's research farms at Olson Ranches out in Nebraska, measuring methane coming off of cattle. You have two 1,300-pound steers, and they're finding that these two 1,300-pound steers emit methane at a different rate. So they're looking at a genetic link for methane production, and maybe if uh, they discover what it is and what how that is correlated to other traits, that uh, down the road we may have a EPD or or a way of selecting animals that produce less methane. The other thing that's pretty exciting is some research that's coming out of the University of California Davis, where they have uh, discovered a certain type of seaweed. If you get that and uh, uh, harvest it and dry it out and feed it by only a couple ounces a head per day drastically cuts the methane production. So those are some things that are very exciting that's coming down the pike right now. In the future, I mean, my goodness, this is going to be absolutely dynamic that's going to be happening in agriculture. Uh, you know, this whole regenerative agriculture movement that's coming along with biologicals, this is starting to really gain some steam and there's a lot of people that are starting to look into that. And obviously, uh, carbon credit, that this is coming down the pike that we're watching is 
at some point in time, we're going to be able to sell what we're doing to different people, to different companies for the carbon that we are sequestering in our operation. So it's just going to be a dynamic time for these young bucks in, in, in farming to, to explore the future. Definitely. I mean, I, and I feel like there's, there's a lot that's happening with that and it's kind of going to be one of those long-term goals. Is there anything short-term that you guys are looking at trying, whether that's this year or within the next five years? Well, one of our goals is always to try to extend the grazing season. Uh, uh, obviously uh, in winter here, we, you know, at some point in time you have to do start, start feeding some hay and if, if we can start grazing earlier in the year and getting them, you know, them off of grass later in the year, you know, that changes the amount of uh, stored hay that we have to do. Looking at cover crops uh, uh, that we're starting to put in here, maybe we're going to start interseeding some uh, rye into uh, our standing soybean fields by uh, uh, aerial application just to get a little bit of a rye established right before the beans are established so so we get some early season grazing from that rye and we're always looking at different brassicas and uh, things that we could possibly interject into some of this land but the uh, biggest problem that we have in Wisconsin here is, is our location to get these things growing before the frost hits. Thank you for sharing uh, enlightening a dairy girl on some of the beef things that you are doing on your farm. Last question for you guys, and this is kind of going away from the sustainability items we were talking about and more just about your relationship. It's like you said, it's a really unique dynamic um, that it's not a father-son duo, that Josh worked for Jerry, and, and that's how you guys started your relationship can you share how you make your business relationship work and some advice that you have for other farms that are trying to involve a non-family member? Well, first of all, Jerry's been an excellent role model for me, um, not just from a grazing standpoint, but as a man. And uh, and being, being friends with his son, uh, I've known their family for a long time, and that's probably one of the reasons why this works. But Having open lines of communication and then being accountable for the things that you say you're going to do, I think, are, are really important in creating trust between two people. Having having guidelines up front, knowing expectations, I think, are very important, which is something that we did when we created SNH Livestock. We sat down, we got a plan together, what we wanted to do. We put it on paper, and uh, we're, we're following it. We're following through with what we're what our plans were. But for me, it's it's just been invaluable having having Jerry there. He's he's forgotten more about grazing cattle than I'll ever know in my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so when when I don't know the answer to something, it's it's really really awesome to have somebody to go to who's been doing this for a long time. And I think if people can can look for those sort of mentors, whether it's you know in my case it was creating a partnership, but it's not going to work for everybody. So if they're if they're willing to take a risk and start something and maybe even start small, if they can find that person who can be a mentor for them and and they can go to with their questions, that's going to be invaluable. Yeah, Joanne. As far as for me is, hey, I'm 72 years old. Uh, I want to retire and become a professional sheepshead player, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm not very good at playing sheets, and so I got a problem there. But uh, uh, you got to appreciate the relationship that uh, my sons have for with Josh. Is you know, my boys will be taking over the farm. Uh, they may not be taking over the cattle business, but they'll be. They have other interests. Uh, I've got one son that's a deputy sheriff in Fonlac County. The other son is in real estate development, and but they love the farm, and they're and they're going to 
probably inherit this farm a little bit uh, in the future. And, and their relationship with Josh is what's going to make it work. Is uh, and, and my boys and Josh are very tight. Uh, my oldest son, Mike, is the godfather to uh, Josh's elder daughter. And uh, Josh was in both my son's weddings. So they're pretty tight. And uh, uh, one of the amazing things that happened out here is how we can appreciate all this. Uh, uh, my son, Mike, was out with Josh and his daughter. And last fall, uh, his Josh's 10-year-old daughter shot, shot her first buck off our farm. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be very special to Josh and Mike and also her, the, Josh's daughter, Autumn. It's, uh, you know, how do you pass these things on? Uh, for those guys out there that uh, have that special employee that uh, they they want, uh, Josh says, venture them, uh, give them a little piece of the action, and uh, get them involved in the operation. These good employees, you can't pay enough to keep them uh, uh, totally satisfied unless they have a they have a little skin in the game. Right. Well, thank you for that insight and sharing more about your farm as well as the Environmental Stewardship Award. Our guests have been Josh Sharp and Jerry Huth. They are the owners of Huth Pulled Herefords and SNH Livestock Enterprises located in Oakfield, Wisconsin. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Joanna.